Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, The Ordering of the Monks, Basil's Long Rule. We are continuing our ongoing fascination with monastic life on the podcast today. Because in addition to his many theological treatises and ecclesiastical victories, Basil also gave us one of the first detailed rules of monastic life, commonly called the Long Rule today because he also wrote a shorter one. And so today, we're going to be discussing Basil's Long Rule and what it has to tell us about his own theology and the development of monasticism in the time period. Now, there are two things you need to know about the Long Rule right off the bat. First, you need to know that it's not actually a rule, and in its current form, it wasn't exactly written by Basil. Wait, wait, no, don't, no, no, come come back, come back. I see you changing over to Gastropod. I know they've got a new episode. Please, don't leave me. I promise this episode is still worth your time. Let me explain. Every word written in this text was indeed written by Basil, but they weren't written in the particular order in which we have them. As you probably remember, Basil didn't really live in a monastic community after a short period following his education, but he remained interested in the monastic life, and over the course of his long episcopate, he wrote many letters of advice to monks and settled disputes between them about how to live. After his death, some people decided that Basil had had a lot of good things to say about this, and elected to compile his advice into the long-form treatise that we have so that people could sit down and read what he had to say in one sitting. And by some people, I really mean Rufinus of Aquileia, a 4th century monk and bishop who made it his life's work to translate Greek materials into Latin. Rufinus is a bit of a controversial figure among historians because of his work on Origen. You may remember from our earlier episodes that there is significant controversy as to what Origen taught and whether he held some controversial positions like universal salvation, reincarnation, and other similarly hot takes. One of the big reasons why we don't know exactly what Origen taught is because of Rufinus. You see, we don't actually have a full original copy of the Greek text of Origen's masterwork on first principles. Now that, in and of itself, is not terribly surprising. Texts tend to decompose, and as Origen was condemned later, at that time his works were often destroyed on sight. What we do have is a complete copy of Rufinus's Latin translation of On First Principles. And based on comparisons to the bits and pieces of the original Greek that we do have, it sure looks like Rufinus has deleted the portions of Origen that looked the most heretical to him. Now, you have endured enough of my punishingly intricate opinions about Origen for now, and I'm not going to wade into the debate about Origen's orthodoxy here. That's for other episodes. But you do need to know that Rufinus is not above editing his translated sources to bring them into conformity with his version of correct teaching. And in fact, this is pretty common behavior among editors of the period. Everything is copied by hand, and so editors, when they see something that doesn't make sense, often assume that another scribe just made a mistake, 
or that something heretical got added in by somebody else because the great teacher would never say this. That is why, whenever possible, you should look for the critical edition of an ancient text to read. Now, a critical edition does not mean that the edition is going to tell you when your paragraphs are sagging or how disappointing your reading skills are. No, a critical edition is when a modern scholar has examined all the available versions of a given text and has applied a process of critical reasoning to determine what the most accurate version of it is. What I am working with in this episode is the critical edition of the rule of St. Basil. It includes the organizational scheme that Rufinus applied when arranging Basil's letters and replies, but it includes the judgment of scholarship as to what the best original text is. So, with that out of the way, what does Basil have to tell us about how monastic life is organized? Well, he begins by describing the summary of humanity's obligations to God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You will probably note that Basil is quoting Jesus here, specifically Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, when Jesus gives the summary of the law. These two commandments, Jesus says, summarize everything that God gave in the law. Now, Basil then goes on to tell us that loving God is actually the most natural act of all. After all, we are grateful when a human being is kind to us or treats us gently, and we love to see people who are wise, just, truthful, good, etc. So how much more so will God, who is wisdom, justice, truthfulness, beauty, and goodness itself, arouse our natural love and gratitude. The problem, of course, is that the mind is prone to forgetting how much God has done for it, and hence to wander into sin and disillusionment. The monastic life solves this problem by devotion to regular acts of piety and remembrance, so that God may be, quote, fixed and figured as it were in our soul like a seal, in Basil's words. The monastic life also has the advantage of bringing the monk into contact with other people who are dedicated to living life this same way. Which gets us back to that second part of the summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Basil tackles a thorny question among monastics here. Is it better for monks to live privately, separately, or in a dedicated community? This question touches on a division between monastics that we haven't really talked about much. It's the difference between eremitical and cenobitic forms of monasticism. Now, no monks lived completely solitary lives. However, there were degrees of sociality available to them. Eremitical monks lived in solitary cells, often separated from others by a fairly substantial amount of distance. They might get together for church about once a week, and occasionally some of the monks would go and visit their elders for advice and guidance. And that was about all the need for social interaction that they really had. Antony the Great was an Eremitic monk, for example. By contrast, Cenobitic monks lived in close proximity, often in communal housing with each other, and gathered to pray multiple times a day. Basil thinks that the common life of the Cenobites has many advantages. The first is that it allows the whole to provide for themselves better than they could individually. But more importantly, it gives the monk a way of loving their neighbor. After all, love seeks not its own, as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says. Moreover, it provides the monk an excellent training ground for virtue. 
Because after all, you can't be humble without other people to be humble around, or merciful without someone to show mercy to. And in one of my favorite one-liners, Basil says, quote, How indeed shall the monk exercise himself in patience if he has no one who appears to thwart his wishes? In other words, how are you going to be patient if there's nobody around to test your patience? Antony may have won his virtue by fighting with demons in the desert. The Cenobitic monk wins his virtue by facing down all the little irritations and slights that come from life in community. The importance of community in attaining virtue is the centerpiece of Basil's guidance. The monastic life is difficult and not for everyone. That is why it is appropriate that monastic aspirants be tested by the community. You want to make sure they are ready for the demands of this life. Monks are to wear only the simplest clothes and eat the simplest of food. That way their bodily needs are taken care of so that they have the maximum amount of time to devote to matters of the spirit. That virtue of simplicity will come to define the heart of monastic life for centuries to come through one very important reader of Basil's rules, St. Benedict. Many of you will know St. Benedict as sort of the OG Cenobitic monk. He wrote what is far and away the most influential set of rules for monastic life in the West. Most monastic orders take their inspiration from Benedict's rules. And Benedict's favorite word in his rule is enough. This much food is enough, this much sleep is enough, this kind of clothing. Monks live a life in which they give themselves enough physically. No less, and no more. Benedict gets this idea from St. Basil. Basil's demand for simplicity for monks goes hand-in-hand hand with the central value of all monastic life, that they live their lives in such a way as to be as pleasing to God as possible. That's the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Basil addresses the question of how to serve God directly in question 14, and I'm going to let him explain his position in his own words, and I quote, Question. In what disposition ought one to serve God, and that disposition itself, what is it? Answer. I consider it a good disposition or mind when there is in us an eager, unquenchable, and unshakable desire to be pleasing to God. Such a disposition is attained through contemplation, or the knowledge through which we are able to look towards and perceive the majesty of the glories of God, and by devout and pure thoughts and through remembrance of the benefits that have been bestowed on us by God. From the recollection of which there arises the soul's love for the Lord her God, so that she loves him with all her heart and all her soul and all her mind. Like the one who said, As the deer that yearns for the fountains of water, so my soul yearns for you, O God. Psalm 41, verse 1. Such is the disposition with which we must serve the Lord, fulfilling the saying of the Apostle, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or hunger, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? Romans chapter 8, verse 35. End quote. Now, there's a lot going on in this little answer. I want to highlight three things. First, when Basil says that we achieve the right disposition to God through contemplation, the actual Greek word he is using is theorion. It's the same root word that our English word theory comes from. And for those of you who study mysticism, that word should be setting off some light bulbs in your head. Long story short, the tradition of 
Theoria or Theorion, what it is and how we attain it, is a big, big deal in mystical theologies of all stripes. I can't do it justice in this episode, so I'm going to save it for a supplemental in which we talk about Evagrius. For now, just know that Basil is talking about that same tradition. Second, I really do think that the monastic disposition is the heart and soul of Basil's rule. To yearn for God, to unshakably seek what is right, is precisely to seek God's glory first and your own comfort second. The reason why monks live the way they do is not because they think all other paths are sinful. You can live a perfectly holy life raising a family in the city. In fact, one of my favorite sayings of the desert monks relates the story of a man who was held to be the equal of Antony the Great. This man, who is never named, was a doctor in Alexandria who gave his excess income to the poor and was kind and charitable to those he met. His ordinary holiness was so great that it was said when he sang his hymns in church, the angels sang with him. The reason for being a monk was not because it was the only way to heaven. It was not even because it was the only way to be holy. You became a monk because you wanted to live a life that glorified God as radically as possible, a life that signaled to others that something new and exciting and different was happening. That particular kind of love of God is what drives the whole monastic ethos, and it is what leads St. Basil to proclaim that the monk fulfills the scriptures, as he did so beautifully in that answer. Which brings us to point number three. Basil uses the Bible in a very interesting way throughout this text. Monks in general use the Bible in interesting ways. I'm a little hesitant to say more about it, because scholarship about monks is extremely contentious and persnickety academics are likely to appear out of the woodwork to chide me if I say something they disagree with. But I think my lumber is pretty well sealed, so I will go ahead and say it. Oftentimes monastic authors will apply the scriptures to one's life as a form of concrete spiritual direction, and it can seem arbitrary at first glance. Take those three passages Basil quoted above. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, that's a straight-up quotation of the first and greatest commandment that Jesus taught in Mark. Now, depending on what tradition you are raised in, you might have all different kinds of interpretations of this. You might think that it's the sort of lofty goal that we can approach in this earthly life, but nobody can really love God with all their being in this life. Or you might think it's a commandment that is given precisely because it's impossible that the goal of this commandment is to make us realize we can't make ourselves love God. And as we despair of our own powers, we accept God's love for us, and thereby kindle the fires of genuine love for God that are born out of our deep gratitude. But Basil takes a much more direct approach. This is supposed to be you, he says. You are supposed to have this disposition in your daily life, right here, right now, and you can do it. And when you do, you will be like the psalmist, who says that he longs for God like a deer longs for brooks of water. It's not poetic hyperbole. It's not merely an historical description of how somebody else felt. It's how you can feel too. And when you do that, you will fulfill what St. Paul said, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I said that these can sound arbitrary, because it's not clear at first why Basil chooses these texts and places them in this order. After all, 
I could whip out any biblical text and slap it down in a series of sayings. Why choose these texts? Why in this order and with these connections between them? The answer, as far as I can tell, is that Basil is saying all of this because he expects the monk to become a kind of living scripture. The monk shows forth in life the truth of all of these biblical sayings. Monks embody God's truth by following Jesus in a very literal and often very costly way. Such a life is their charism. And so the link between Mark, the Psalms, and the Romans is precisely the life of the monk, as through his practices he becomes ever more like Jesus. The psychological and spiritual changes which result in the monk as a result of following the rule are the uniting principle of biblical interpretation. I remember a monk saying once that when he started praying, it seemed to him like the Psalms were about somebody else. They had nothing to do with him. And now after years in community, he says, this is me. This is my life. I've become better. I've become more Christ-like in this. And now I can see the applicability of these Psalms to me. Which is really just another way of saying that Christ is the uniting principle of biblical interpretation and the particular path to Christ-likeness that monks take. Okay, that is enough editorializing. It sounds like the petulant academics have almost drilled their way through my sealed wooden floors, so I need to move on before they arrive to scold me. The Road to Nicaea, not brought to you by petulant academics. So let's talk more about these rules. We get a whole bunch of different judgments grouped around various themes, and these judgments often build off each other, like, in what spirit should I accept rebuke or correction? What should I do if someone repents but falls into sin again? What should I do if I rebuke someone, but they rebuke me for rebuking them? What do we do if family comes to visit us? Do we have to let the brothers wake us up in the middle of the night to say our vigils? The answer to that one is yes, by the way. How do we handle brothers who get really cranky about being woken up in the middle of the night for vigils? The answer to that one is the superior scolds them and reminds them what a gift they're being given to get up and pray, which is, after all, their whole job. There's also a set of rules or guidelines focused around the monk's inner life. Basil addresses questions like, why does my mind wander away from God? Basil's answer is that this happens when you have too much free time and aren't caring for the necessities of life, because those necessities have been fulfilled and your mind wanders to luxuries. So simplify your life, work harder, and remember that God is always before you and the problem will take care of itself. Some of the monks ask Basil why they fall into despondency sometimes and are excited and invigorated other days. Basil tells them this is just a sign they aren't perfect yet, and they should be motivated to continue in their life together so that they will be liberated from that despondency. Basil prescribes the same remedy for anger. He knows that there are people in his own day who think that anger is an inevitable emotion. But Basil disagrees. He says that if we believe and remember that God watches over all things, that should still our anger and indignation. Even if we see somebody else sinning, we will be motivated to correct them from compassion rather than anger. I have a bone to pick with Basil about this. Because I do think that anger is a natural and unavoidable psychological reaction to stress. 
And there's a lot of good psychological research to suggest that anger only becomes more powerful when it is denied or disowned. So what does Basil mean when he talks about we should just sort of get rid of this? We should just shove it down? Well, the strongest reading I can give to Basil is something like this. When Basil counsels us to avoid anger, he typically does so by reminding us of our relationships. We remember that God is present and we are all accountable to God, us and those with whom we are angry. We remember as well that we owe obedience to our fellow monastics. We are in community to serve them, even if they are not our superior. All the monks, all the monks serve each other. So it may be that what Basil is really saying is that once we remember our purpose, we will avoid the kind of haughty, superior anger that we feel when a subordinate fails us. We may still feel hurt and aggression when we have been wounded, but ultimately we are in a community of equals. God is the one who will set wrongs right. That is not our job. Our duty is to love fully and gently correct. In other words, perhaps Basil is not trying to say, don't ever experience anger, so much as he is trying to point us back to the foundational monastic virtues of gentleness and moderation. Time after time, Basil answers questions from the monks about what to do if somebody is pushing themselves too hard. Sometimes this has to do with things that cause anger. Other times it just has to do with somebody leaving the community behind. Maybe they are trying to do an extreme fast or work more than they can bear. Basil is quite suspicious of these behaviors. Perhaps these people are trying to distinguish themselves in the community to be better than the other monks, and that's vainglory. Perhaps they have an unhealthy attachment to self-denial. In either case, they should keep the good of the community front and center, eating the food that is enough and doing the work that is enough. The presider should make sure that they are assigned appropriate provisions for their needs and not encourage them to go above and beyond of their own volition. Perhaps the most important set of questions, though, concern the love of God and love of neighbor. Basil tells us again and again that it is natural to love God. He says, quote, If we receive the benefits of God gratefully and faithfully, we shall without doubt love God the provider of the benefits, and without being taught by a certain natural instinct, such a disposition is awakened towards him, if one's soul is in a sound condition, end quote. What is the sign that we love God? No more and no less than what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's an appropriately monastic criterion if there ever was one. We prove we love our neighbor by caring about them, mourning when they are mired in sin, rejoicing when they make progress in good. And we love even our enemies, which are those people who harm us with their sins. Loving enemies does not mean being a doormat. Our love for them is often shown in reproofs and corrections, coupled with a continued willingness to provide for their physical needs. And if we need help loving them, we simply remember their benefits to us. For after all, they provide us with an occasion to fulfill the beatitude. Blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and speak every kind of evil word against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. And that, in broad strokes at least, is the rule of St. Basil. Not a rule in a technical sense, and with some skillful editing involved.
Nevertheless, it provides a fascinating window into the life of communal monasticism, its challenges, its glories, and the questions it raised for those living in that lifestyle and those connected to them. We see clearly the major themes of Basil's monastic theology, the utter seriousness of their commitment to God, simplicity and sincerity, the centrality of the Bible as a book of lived spiritual experience, and the natural capacity of believers to love God and each other. Each of these themes would be taken up and systematized in later monastic traditions, most famously in the rule of St. Benedict, as we noted before. Through Benedictine spirituality, Basil's monastic theology would permeate the entire Latin-speaking Christian world. It's a powerful witness, and I hope you'll agree, a very worthwhile side excursion along this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Uh.